The question that we're asking this afternoon is quite simply, is there hope in a violent world? Is there hope in a violent world? Uh, I think that that, for many people, is an incredibly important question. Uh, We live in a world which is ravaged by violence, sadly. Even in this past week, we've been reminded with such horrific clarity the fact that we live in a violent world. Boston Marathon, if you like, a celebration of here we are today. (laughs) Here we are at the end of there will still be some who are running or walking, finding, fighting their way through the London Marathon. Uh, Here we are today celebrating human endeavor, whereas at the very beginning of the week, in exactly the same situation, we are reminded of human atrocity. What a paradox. What a remarkable paradox that we see. As I was watching the TV, the coverage of the London Marathon this morning, it seemed to me almost as though the the crowd's response, the number of people who were out, were almost saying, we will rise above this. We will stand against this kind of adversity and all of the uh, horrors that we saw at the beginning of the week. But we cannot get away from the reality of the issues that we face. We see challenges in the likes of Syria. We see challenges in India. If you've been following any of the news over this past week, it is impossible to get away from the fact that we live in a violent world. Now, when I say violent, it's very important for us to understand that what I'm talking about at this particular point in time is the harsh reality that we were talking about the fact that human beings will do the most atrocious things to other human beings. That that specifically is what I'm looking at. There is a second question, which isn't so much the question for this afternoon. The very fact that we live in such a violent world in terms of nature. But here we are at the beginning of the 21st century looking at the world that we live in. And I guess for many of us, as we look, those of you still in school, college, maybe some of you at uni doing uh, studies looking into the past, what you will be very clear of is that this isn't a unique problem to the world that we live in today, is it? This is actually written deep into the problem of humanity. We look back through history and we see that we live in a consistently violent world. We live in a world which is continuing as it always has. Now, really that's a tragedy against many of our thinking, the way many of us would think. In, In that optimistic desire that humanity would rise above... And, and would progress and would move to a point of uh, not facing these challenges, the reality is that we continue to live in a world which is probably just as violent as it ever has been. 
in pockets here and there. It, it's almost, doesn't it seem to you as though it almost moves around the globe in these pockets of violence and uh, where certain places seem to have a level of stability for a period of time uh, and then it explodes. And, and we live in the, that ongoing reality of the problem that we live in, uh, uh, in with regards to the human condition. At the same time, the very fact that we are even considering this question this afternoon tells us something. It also tells us on the flip side is that also written deep into us is the desire that we live in a world that is not like this. Isn't that fascinating? We have written into us written into what it is to be a human being, a desire for justice, a desire for good, a desire for well-being, all of those things that we hold on to so dearly, so desperately, and in fact many would say is the very core of what it is to be distinctly human, is this desire that we would do good and be good and see good done in the world that we live in. In other words, we're not the kind of beings, are we, who are able to accept simply that we live in a violent world. We're not a species that accepts unconditionally the idea of horror in the world that we live in. I was watching, some of you will have seen it, um, um, Meerkat Manor. I think it's called. Um, it's fascinating characters. Um, uh, yeah, not to be confused with a, an insurance website. Um, th- these meerkats, colonies of meerkats, absolutely normal to them is the conflict between the various colonies. Just, that's just normal life. It's just part of what it is. Yet we as human beings, we can't live like that, can we? We can't live accepting that this is just part of human life, that that, that the kind of battles between people is just part of our evolutionary process, and that is all that it is. We cannot live with that. It is honorable to be human (laughs) in our desire to see progress. In fact, if we look back through time, we will see, and I'm going to initially raise this, we will see that one of the driving forces for much good in the world has actually been the Christian faith. Much change has been made through the desire of the progress of the Christian faith. Now, I'll put a caveat for those of you who are about to get really cross with me, and I'll say, I also accept that much of what is claimed to be the Christian faith has done a huge amount of bad in the world as well. So I accept that, but much of the progress, the abolition of slavery, uh, the prison reforms, all of those kind of things, was written into uh, a distinctly Christian perspective of humanity, that we believe that we're equally made in the image of God distinctly uh, human with the qualities and, and values that we have equal to everybody. 
So we can say we can look through back through history and say, well, that has actually been the case to some extent. Now we are living in a different world. We're not living in a Western society anymore, which is distinctly and uniquely shaped by the idea of Christian thinking. And there would be many here, I'm guessing, who would say, hang on a sec, Paul, it is not unique to claim that the Christian faith is the only source of good. In fact, a humanistic perspective would say exactly the same. A humanistic perspective would say, innate to being a human being is the desire that the human race would progress and do well and do good, that is absolutely, distinctly human. It's what is the honor of being a human being. I don't have to have a faith agenda to believe that. I, I can believe that simply because I'm part of this race. That a humanistic perspective would desire and see the progress of the good of humanity in and of itself. And I would say, I am with you in that. I'm with you. I believe that we want to see well, good, positive steps forward for the human race. Human rights is a burning hot issue, isn't it? Separate, completely separate to the idea of any faith-based agenda. In fact, human rights are, are written into the very structures of our government on a, on a worldwide basis, the desire for human rights. There is actually the International Humanistic and Ethical Union, the IHEU. One of their goals is distinctly the, the well-being of humanity. They have human rights at the center of their agenda in the absence of any faith-based practice. So we would, we would ask the question, well, what makes that, what makes the Christian faith different? After all, what they are looking for, what they hold on to is exactly the things that we would hold on to. A right to life written into the very core of human rights, a right to life. Me as a human being, I have a right to life. You have no right to take my life. I have a right to freedom from torture. I have a right to freedom from slavery, right to a fair trial, right to freedom of speech, right to freedom of thought and conscience and religion, right to freedom of movement. All of those things are distinctly human. And good. In fact, all of that, if we were able to put all of that in place, absolutely, completely successfully, we could say that we were living in a world that would finally be rid of violence. If all of that was successfully in place, we would say, what a wonderful world we now live in. It's tremendous. We would want all of those things to be achieved. So why don't, we, why don't we see it happen? Why is it that the human race is not 
able to achieve it. I want to say that all of those aspirations are absolutely laudable, but there are two reasons why ultimately, for all of the desire to see them successful, two reasons why they ultimately fail. First is this. Your peace, what you design and desire as peace, might look very different to what I design and desire as peace. Your idea of what should be may look very different to my idea of what should be. And straight away then we have a conflict, don't we? We have a problem. We have a a point of no resolution. In fact, if we look around the world today, we could probably say that um, every regime in some way or another is seeking some peace, but it's peace on a pre-described basis, peace according to a particular ideal. Those of you who are old enough to remember the whole peace and love agenda of the 60s and 70s hippie movement. In fact, it's great actually. MTV is amazing because it kind of revives an interest in all of you who weren't even born during the hippie movement. You can kind of relate to it as well. There was this, the agenda of peace and love, a desire for peace and love. And yet, what we actually saw was an ultimate breakdown. We saw the tragedy of some deaths at Woodstock, followed by the horrific events at Altamont, where, bizarrely, at a musical festival, Hell's Angels were used as security guards. I can't ever come to terms why that would ever be a good idea and there were people who were stabbed and then I guess many commentators would say the peace and love agenda of the hippie movement finally broke down with the horrific deaths instigated by Charles Manson you see one agenda of peace doesn't look like somebody else's agenda for peace And when two different agendas for peace collide, you only have one result, which is not peace, but rather is violence. So that's one reason why, although human desires for peace might be very laudable, there is a massive crisis. The second is this. It is aspirational, but ultimately, ultimately, it is personally futile. I might spend all of my life working hard for peace. That's a fantastic objective in life. Many have committed their lives to achieving that. But we look around and we say, ultimately, it is personally futile. You know the the idea that none of us can actually change the world. (laughs) There's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? We might be aspiring to it. We might be taking things forward. There might be progress. But ultimately, personally, I end up at the end of life. I die and I have not achieved all that I might have wanted to achieve. 
you know, for every beauty pageant interview where the girl says, I want to see world peace, it never actually happens. It might be an aspiration, but ultimately it is futile. It's almost as though the desire for peace, the the desire for a world without violence takes us so far and then leaves us standing. It doesn't take us that extra few steps that we know we desperately need. I want to suggest to you now that that is precisely why the message of the Bible, the message of the good news of Jesus is a greater response than the humanistic desire for peace that this world has. I want to suggest that that these are precisely the reasons why the message of Jesus can take us over, above, and beyond these desires and can deliver more than everything that we actually desire purely in our humanity. The first reason is this. Remember we said problem number one is your peace might not look like my peace. (laughs) Precisely. Precisely. One of the messages of the Bible is that we need not a discussion between us about which peace is appropriate, Rather, we need an ultimate arbiter, an ultimate statement of what peace is. In other words, humanity can't work it out for itself. It needs for a greater authority to break in and to define it for us. The Bible says that. Interesting, great with a bit of Bible software, you can do it. Over seven and a half thousand times and over six thousand verses, the Bible uses the word Lord. Lord. What does that mean? What does the word Lord mean? I guess even in our basic understanding, we understand that to be somebody who has authority, lordship over us. Somebody who can come in and can demand something of us and stand above us and and lay down how it is to be. Now, one of the messages of the Bible, if we follow the way it develops over time through the Old Testament and into the New Testament uh, and into the world that we now live in today is this. We need God to not be a God who is distant. We need God to be our Lord. We need him to be the one who defines. We need him to be the one who creates authority for us. We need him to be able to say to the whole of the world, this is what peace looks like. This is how peace is to be defined. This is therefore how you are to live in accordance with the world that I have designed and the world that I have created and the world that I have placed you in. Now one of the 
messages that we see as we see the Bible unfold is that we have rebelled against that God and the Lordship of God, the idea that God is Lord, is growing and growing and growing in its impact as we see it unveiled over the thousands of years that the Bible covers. Ultimately to this point, Mark chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, spoken by a man who was given the job by God of being the final preparing spokesman. That's, if you think about the the Old Testament like this, all of it, all of the Old Testament is about preparing for one event. And we have hundreds of preparing spokesmen, people who are speaking right the way through the Old Testament preparing. John the Baptist was given the final job of being the very last preparing spokesman. He said this, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Later on, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, what John, is do- what John the Baptist was doing for us was making that final preparation to say the idea of Lord is no longer a concept that is hidden. The idea of a Lord is an idea that is now present. Jesus breaks into this world so that he becomes our Lord. He no longer, or or rather we are no longer therefore dependent on our own interpretation, on our own ideas of what the world ought to look like. That is the claim that the Bible is making. It's saying Jesus is the Lord. He's the one who breaks into our world and says, follow me. No longer live according to your agenda, live according to my agenda. Later on, Paul explains this a little bit more in Romans where he says this. This is really starting to touch on the idea of peace. And it ties together the idea of peace and the lordship of Jesus where he says this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's just, I'll unpack that a little bit. He says, right, we have now come into relationship. We have been counted acceptable to God through faith and we have peace with God. What's the ultimate in nonviolence? <laughs> peace is the complete opposite to violence, really, isn't it? And Paul says this. What is your first understanding? What is your first priority of what the beginning of peace looks like? The beginning of peace looks like peace with God. And the only way that you can find peace with God is by having Jesus as your Lord. In other words, that stops 
As soon as I become a subject of his, the fight is over. He's my Lord now. And there is no longer violence between me and God. So the first step that we would say is that real peace looks firstly like us having peace with God. Secondly, we see peace in biblical terms is ultimately aspirational. Now, do you remember we said ultimately peace in human terms was futile? We could try as hard as we possibly could and we wouldn't get anywhere, ultimately. We might make little small steps of progress, which are, I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive for that. You know, many of us should be thinking, how can I give more of my life to seeking the well-being of the world that we live in? But ultimately, I, I end up, if that's as good as it gets... I end up getting nowhere. Whereas what the Bible says is this. We have a hope. Ephesians chapter 1 says this. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18. Paul is praying and he's, he's praying that the Ephesian church might understand more of their privileged position. And he says this. I pray... That, your art, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. In other words, uh, the idea that the Bible unfolds is, yes, you might live in a world which is violent, but you're not living in a world which is violent without any hope. In humanistic terms, you might take it so far, but ultimately it's the end. In biblical terms, it says, no, you have a hope which is beyond this life. It's more than that. So, so in other words, I can get to the end of this life and I might not have made the progress that I would have hoped. You might not have made the progress that you might have hoped for. But I have a greater hope than just this world. I have a hope which is bigger. I have a hope which is eternal. I want you to know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. In other words, what the Bible is saying is, ultimately living in a violent world, living in a world without hope, no. No, no absolutely not. We're not living in a world without hope. We might be living in a violent world, but we're not living in a world without hope. The whole trajectory of the Bible is taking us to a future world for those who trust and for those who believe, which is a world filled with peace. A hope which is his inheritance. <laughs> In other words, the inheritance that Jesus has becomes my hope. That's what my relationship with him does. M what he receives is my hope. So the goal of the Christian life is not ultimately futile. It's ultimately successful. That's really important because many of us
we'll get to the end of life and it will look like we haven't achieved anything. It will look like life has been a wisp that has disappeared in a moment of time and I'll be forgotten within a few generations and that will be me. And if that's all it is, then we have no hope. But the Bible says there is a hope. A hope of eternal life. In fact, Jesus came and said, I have come to give you life. One of the things that the Bible talks about, certainly in the New Testament again and again, it talks about an eternal life. What does life eternal look like? Because being honest with you, if life eternal looks like this life, I don't know about you, but I don't know whether I want to live forever, quite honestly. I'm not sure whether I do want to live forever. You might be, you might be in your uh, late teens, early 20s thinking, that guy's weird. <laughs> Wait until you're about 45, 50, and then you'll realize, actually... Um, I don't know whether I want to hang around if this is as good as it gets. But you know, this isn't as good as it gets. The Bible describes an ultimate eternity, a new heaven, a new earth, where the Bible describes that God will wipe away every tear. Every tear will be gone. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he'll dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them to be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? For the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things has passed away. The old way in which it used to be. That's what it's saying. That, that kind of, if you've, if you've followed Lord of the Rings or any of those kind of, The Hobbit or uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, books of Narnia, that's one of the themes that run through them, isn't it? The old order of things is gone. It's no longer like that. It's now like this. I, I remember when I was little, and I'd hurt myself and the gentleness of having a tear wiped away was just about the ultimate. And then I grew up and I realized that there are some tears that can't be wiped away quite so easily. And then I read in the Bible here that the future that God has designed is a world where every tear will be wiped away. The deep tears... The tears that in this life don't seem to ever be able to be wiped away. That is peace. That is hope. The amazing thing is this. That God did not deliver that from a distance. How did God resolve violence? He actually resolved it by breaking into this world, not by standing off from this world, but by breaking in, 
by submitting himself to the ultimate violence of death on a cross. By absorbing, almost as though, everything that carries the mantle of violence in this world, sort of metaphorically speaking, was being pointed directly to that one moment where Jesus absorbed the very violence of this world. So that that hope that we've just been talking about could be achieved. Why do you say that? How did his death relate to that hope? Well, we read it. Because it's his glorious inheritance. In other words, he might have absorbed the violence. He might have suffered the most horrific death, but ultimately, ultimately, He lived. He triumphed over it. He rose again to receive an inheritance from his Father that he then invites those of us who trust in him to enjoy forever. Can we live in a violent world? Well, we've got no choice, folks. We are living in a violent world. But do we end up feeling as though that becomes crushing? Or is it possible to live in this violent world and actually have hope? The Bible says you absolutely have hope. But the hope is only from one source. From Jesus. Who came and absorbed the violence so that if we trust in him, we might find hope for ourselves. That sounds just so selfish, doesn't it? Until we realize that the greatest gift that God can give us is to be present with him. Where we end up enjoying him more than anything else, and he gets all of the glory, and we get the eternal benefit of life with him. I want to encourage you, maybe as you look at the papers over the next week, to find ways to readjust how you read those various events and to remind yourselves that though we live as we do, there is hope in Jesus.